This episode of Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is brought to you by Mommy Steps Maternity Insoles, who are offering our listeners a special 20% discount off their truly fabulous insoles when you go to maternityinsoles.com and use coupon code COMMONSENSE at checkout. I'm telling you, I got my Mommy Steps insoles last month, and I haven't worn a pair of shoes without them since. In fact, I love them, and I actually slipped a pair into my slippers this week. Awesome. Maternityinsoles.com. Use coupon code COMMONSENSE when you check out. Today's episode is also brought to you by PrepDish.com, a genius subscription service that sends you weekly real food-based paleo and gluten-free meal plans that include organized grocery lists and detailed meal prep instructions. Now that's a time saver. Give Prep Dish a try for two weeks for free, and for those two weeks, you'll have the answer to that dreaded daily question, what's for dinner? Right now, Prep Dish is offering our listeners a two-week trial for free. That's right, for free. Go to prepdish.com slash common sense, all lowercase, and give them a try. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we have smart conversations about our lives as mothers and fathers, partners and parents, healthcare providers, musicians, teachers, welders, you know, people in the human race raising the next generation. There's a lot to talk about, and it all starts with pregnancy and what happens to and through mothers at that stage of the parenting game. Okay, well, honestly, it all starts way before that, but that's generally where we pick it up. If you don't already have a copy, go pick up my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever you get your books, or over on my website where I can sign it and ship it out super fast. Uh, Let's see. What's going on? Well, this is Black Maternal Health Week, April 11th to 17th, and that's a campaign that's founded and led by Black Mamas Matter, a Black woman-led cross-sectoral alliance that centers Black mamas to advocate, drive research, build power, and shift culture for Black maternal health rights and justice. You can learn more about that at blackmamasmatter.org. And you know what? This is a very, very important awareness-raising event because maternal health outcomes here in the U.S. are atrocious for Black women. And as they've been tweeting this week from Black Mamas Matter, Black women are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than their white counterparts. Yeah, 243%. Ah, The New York Times did a big article yesterday titled, Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life and Death Crisis. And they did a really good job of spelling it all out. Go check it out. And we talked quite a bit about race and pregnancy here on the podcast and why African-American women have such dire outcomes. Um, And that was back in episodes 78, 79, 80, and 81. And I encourage you to go give them a listen. Um, You know, we're going to be talking about this more and more because we have a very big problem here in America. And more of us who are, the more of us who are aware, the more of us can contribute to solutions. Let's see. Um, 
What else? Last week, I don't know if you guys saw articles in the news about pregnant women being detained for immigration issues, sometimes for really long periods of time. And many report suffering just deplorable health conditions, you know, like limited or no prenatal care and experiencing really serious health complications. These are human rights violations. And in the past, pregnant women weren't routinely held in immigration detainment facilities. That's because pregnant women, regardless of their immigration or citizen status, always need specialized health care to make sure that they and their babies make it through pregnancy and beyond safely. But especially when they're facing some of the conditions, you know, these immigrants are facing trauma, dehydration, malnutrition, abuse. Come on, people, where's the humanity? Is this really who we want our country to be? One that locks up its most vulnerable citizens, pregnant women? This is nuts. And that's just, you know, the way we treat immigrant women during pregnancy. You know, what I want to talk about this week is what our country's new extreme immigrant roundup policies are doing to parents and children in America. Jody Berger Cardoso, Cardoso is a researcher and assistant professor at the University of Houston in the Graduate College of Social Work, and she's the lead researcher on a real interesting new study titled Parenting in the Context of Deportation Risk. And she and I have a whole lot to talk about today. But first, I want to say thanks to our sponsors. Now, PrepDish.com is this brilliant, gluten-free, super-fast, and paleo meal plan subscription service that kind of saved my butt this week. Don't know about you, but in my house, 4 o'clock is when everyone seems to want to know what's for dinner. And, you know, more often than not, my answer is, I don't know yet. This week, I frankly didn't give dinner much thought at all because I had PrepDish.com giving me the answers. Here's how it works. Every week, PrepDish sends you an email that includes your menu, list, and instructions for making everything in advance, plus detailed meal prep instructions designed so you can prep everything once on the weekend. The food's great, and this week's menu included a shrimp stir-fry with broccoli and cauliflower rice. Yum! Right now, PrepDish is offering our listeners a two-week free trial. That's right, free. So go to PrepDish.com forward slash common sense, and that's all lowercase, um, give them a try. Okay, before we get Jody on the line today, let's do a real quick email, shall we? Um, let's see, this from Desiree. And she says, hi, my name is Desiree and my sister turned me on to your podcast. I'm pregnant with my second baby and this pregnancy feels totally different from my first. My son is two and a half and I'm four months along with this one, but this time I'm more tired, achier, already showing, and I'm worried that means something's wrong. I've started to get this pain at the bottom of my belly just once in a while, just a little sharp pain right by where it meets the bone. And I never had that with my first. When I went to the doctor about it, he said there was nothing wrong and I should just try to get more rest. Right. Like that's something I can do when I work full time and I have a two-year-old. Does this sound right to you? Oh, hey there, Desiree. Oh, honey, you poor thing. You just sound pretty discouraged and exhausted. And I have to say, I remember that feeling so well. Now, if your doctor really has ruled out any specific medical problems, and it kind of sounds like you did, you might just have a solid case of second pregnancy. Now, on a personal level, 
I think second pregnancies are hard because it's all the physical work of a first pregnancy, but without the super tight abs and ligaments to support you and with a family support first timers tend to get, with a second pregnancy, your body's been through this before and so is your family and support crew. And, you know, I just think second pregnancies don't get the attention they deserve. I know for me, I dragged my way through pregnancies two and four. Felt pretty good during pregnancies one and three. Of course, with the first one, there's, you know, all the excitement of being pregnant for the first time and people around me were pretty solicitous and kind. Um, You know, of course, like you, I worked and I also was in nursing school, so I didn't get to take it easy, but I felt like I had enough energy most of the time. But then with baby number two, though, well, I was still in nursing school and I was still nursing. Um, but that by then, I had a one and a half year old at home and a whole lot of other family responsibilities, plus a job, plus, plus, plus. That's the way life is, right? It all piles on top of each other and adds up. And then when you're pregnant on top of that, it's a lot. You get tired. You, you know, you get aches and pains. So let's talk about your symptoms. Tired, achy, and showing earlier than you did with your first. Okay. Desiree, of course you're tired, hun. Toddler and a job and a pregnancy, you're going at maximum capacity and it sounds like you're running on fumes. So like your doctor, I'm going to recommend more rest, but like a mother, I'm going to be a bit more practical. I want you to look at your evening schedule and figure out a way for you to climb into bed an hour earlier every night. Seriously, an hour earlier than you normally do. If you normally go to bed at 10, I want you in bed at nine o'clock. If you normally go to bed at 11, 10 o'clock, I want you in. Now, don't use that hour to get stuff done or catch up online. Use it to put your head on the pillow, close your eyes, and rest. You're probably going to need to get your partner or sister or somebody to help you with that two-year-old to make that happen. Or you might do what a lot of mothers do. They put their toddler to bed, they climb in with them, and they call it a night. I don't know your situation, but do whatever you have to do and start making one extra hour of sleep your goal. Now, about that lower abdominal ache. Now, to me, that sounds like ligament pain. And that happens when your uterus is starting to get bigger and your baby is starting to put on a little bit of weight. And, um, you know, the ligaments get pulled a little bit and it's uncomfortable. Um, It hurts, but it's not generally a dangerous thing, and it doesn't generally mean that you're going to continue to have these problems. It's usually, you know, it's more common for women around week 20, um, but lots of women feel achy down there earlier. Tylenol generally helps, but I also want to make sure that you know that this is the kind of thing you want to get checked out very specifically with your doctor. And Um, while it's likely to just be ligament pain and nothing serious, you want to make sure it's nothing else like a bladder infection or preterm contractions. So I know you said that you, your doctor, you know, you saw your doctor about it, but you might want to just give him another call and let him know what's going on. Oh, and about showing earlier than you did with your first. Yeah, that's about muscle tone. Very few of us get the tight muscle tone back that we had before we were pregnant for the first time. And, you know, Then you have your second pregnancy and things are already a little bit poochier. And the result for most of us, or a lot of us, is our tummies don't hold our growing pregnancy back as well. So we show more. It's normal and it's not something to worry about. Um, But I get it, you know, (laughs) you're showing early. It's, it's, we all do. So now I don't mean to sound flippant, 
I want you to try and get some rest. And I also want you to try to get some exercise. It's going to make you feel better. I swear to God, it will. It's important. Desiree, I'll be thinking about you. I hope you do well. All right. Now, before we get our guest on the line, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back in a minute. Okay. We're back and ready to get Jody Berger Cardoso on the line. Now, mentioned it before, Jody Berger Cardoso is a researcher and assistant professor at the University of Houston in the Graduate College of Social Work. And she's the lead researcher on a new study titled Parenting in the Context of Deportation Risk. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Jody. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm happy to have you. This is a conversation that I am really happy that we're going to be having um, because it's not one that we've talked about yet on the podcast. Um, Now, I mentioned before I got you on the line that you are a researcher and assistant professor at the University of Houston um, and the lead researcher on the study we're going to talk about today. But my first question for you is this, who are you and what do you do? Well, I, um, I do a lot of things, actually. I, I do uh, some teaching. I teach a couple of classes here in the Graduate College of Social Work. I train um, master's level social workers who are wanting to go out into the community and practice in the profession. And as we'll talk about in a minute, I also do research. My area of research looks um, at the effects of immigration and migration on mental health of immigrants and their children. And I also do some clinical work. I still have my hands in quite a bit of assessment work. I work um, with mostly nonprofit legal organizations around town, and I help them by conducting mental health or forensic evaluations for children and young adults seeking asylum or um, immigration relief because of experiences of human trafficking or child abandonment. So I keep Mm -hmm. my hands in the clinical realm by conducting several assessments, um, usually, you know, three or four assessments at a given time, and then help in by providing testimony in court on behalf of the client. I did a podcast not too long ago with, um, another woman in Texas who's doing healthcare work around um, refugees. Familiar with Circle of Health International? A little bit, but not too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big state and it's a big problem. Yes. Yeah. And what else? When you're not working, what's your thing? Well, I have um, two young children. One of my, uh, my oldest child is seven and mm-hmm. she's in the first grade. And then I have a 15-month-old. <clears throat> and Ooh. yes, quite a bit <laughs> difference in the age of my kids. So, um, and, and yeah, so I stay busy with them. And I like to travel. Um, I like to participate in um, what I perceive to be events that are social justice-focused. So mm-hmm. I... Um, you know, try and stay involved in the community in that way. And yeah, that's kind of me. Well, all right. Is is the uh, baby a, a girl also? No, it, it's a boy. Ah, one of each. One of, one of each. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of, that's something we could talk about for a while too. But I want right. to talk about your study. About parenting. 
What's that? I said, you guys could give me some feedback about parenting. Happy to. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of on the other end of this parenting spectrum where my youngest is um, 18 and going to go off to college in the fall. And, you know, so I'm looking back on these, you know, the 15 month old and the and the first grade years. And uh, yeah, I get it. It's it's a, those are meaty years. They're meaty years. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, before we dig into the study, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, just current events we've been hearing a lot about lately, about, you know, pregnant women being held in ICE detainment centers and not getting adequate access to health care, which is a human rights violation. And I'm wondering what, you know, what are you reading and hearing? Well, some of it I'm reading and then some of it I'm seeing. Um, So I've been inside of um, several detention centers here in Texas, mostly to evaluate the mental health of individuals seeking asylum. And there are some pretty significant barriers, many of which, as you suggested, Jeannie, are potential violations of human rights. So Mm -hmm. we have people detained for long periods of time, people with pretty significant mental health problems or exposure to pretty significant um, traumatic events, and they're not really able to receive good quality health care, mental health services. And then we, what we know just generally about long-term detention is that it generally exacerbates mental health symptoms. So, you know, somebody who may be predisposed or may who may have previous experiences of trauma and are detained for long periods of time tend to be more symptomatic. They tend to be more depressed or more anxious or their psychosis, the hallucinations and delusions are worse. And so it really is, um, I agree, it really is an issue of human rights. And and what's particularly alarming is the incarceration of children. Yeah. And, and, and that's really um, an area that I've spent some time really thinking about and, and, and helping kids and focusing on because here in the United States, we, we detain children who are seeking asylum or seeking uh, protection from the courts due to abuse and abandonment. We detain them generally for a period of time and in some cases a long period of time. Um, and, and oftentimes we, we will detain very small children with their mothers mm-hmm. um, when their mothers are seeking asylum. And so I think it's a very alarming trend that links very closely with the privatization of the prison system here in the United States that we really need to reflect and think about because it, it, it certainly has a long-term effect on the mental health of young children, but also their parents and their ability to parent them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite challenging to parent your child in the context of detention or incarceration. I can't imagine that anybody who's showing up at, at, uh, you know, a, a, a border crossing in a refugee situation is coming there untraumatized there. You know, they were traumatized when they left their country, probably traumatized during their voyage or journey. And then, you know, re-traumatized when they get here to the United States and land in a detention center. I think that's a fairly accurate statement. And that's that's what my clinical work, but also that's what the research suggests to be the case. Yeah. That that detention after, you know, 
trauma exposure prior to migration and then during the migration journey actually increases the symptoms and really prohibits people from getting uh, services. Yeah, yeah. I'm really concerned about, um, you know, all the mothers who are living in the U.S. as undocumented citizens who aren't going to go, you know, get basic prenatal care, basic health care for their children or themselves because they're worried about being detained. You know, this is, uh, it's inhumane is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the research shows that children of um, immigrants and in particular children of undocumented immigrants are less likely to receive health care, even though they are benefit eligible. Because what we know is that, you know, there's there's 51 million children under the age of 18 that live with one, at least one undocumented parent. And, and the vast majority of those are U.S. citizen children. That, that 5.1 million, that's 7% of all U.S. children. So the scope of this issue is really, really large. It's really and large, think, yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand. <laughs> I think when we talk about this, it doesn't seem as real as when we when we say that this affects 7% of all U.S. Children. Yeah. And I I was, you know, looking at this study and 79% of children born to undocumented parents are US citizens. So That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. What a tremendously complicated problem. So how many parents are, are in this category, undocumented parents? Do we have any idea? Yeah, we do. The, the The Migration Policy Institute, it's a think tank in Washington, D.C. They um, put out a lot of relevant and current information, and it's all free, about um, what the recent numbers of migration um, is and how many parents under what status and from which country live in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that I don't miss, you know, misspeak about that information. I encourage readers to 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 visit the Migration Policy Institute's website. It's www.mpi.org, mm -hmm. and they're really able to retrieve more accurate and more current information. I I can say that migration flows in general have come to a standstill, yeah. um, and that's just because people are 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 too afraid. Even when they're in most need, they're too afraid to come here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about there's 5.1 million children. Just how many of the parents out there are pregnant women who won't get their health care for food? They'll be picked up. But let's talk more about the study, which is titled Parenting in the Context of Deportation Risk. So my first question is, why did you want to do this study? And then my next one is, what did you want to learn? So I wanted to do this study because I think we typically talk about the effect of being undocumented or what immigration enforcement feels like for undocumented adults. Mm -hmm. But I typically think we don't talk about it in the context of the family. Mm -hmm. And you know um, from your own work that really the, the family as a unit functions as a unit. So when one person is experiencing significant challenges, 
those challenges are are felt in some way by all of the members of the family. Isn't what is and what's so, the phrase? A parent is only as happy as their uh, unhappiest child. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I was interested in understanding not beyond like you know this has a negative effect on the mental health of undocumented immigrants. But also, what is the impact of being undocumented on children? And do they know about it? And how does it, how does parenting in the context of this, this tremendous risk, how does it influence how parents interact with their kids, what their kids know about their situation, and sort of how they address the undocumented status as a cohesive unit? And so the the purpose of the study was to understand what it was like for so what parenting was like in the context of this deportation risk and how this deportation risk influenced or was experienced by other members in the family. So, you know, in our social construct, parents are the authorities and kids are, you know, kids. But in these families, kids are taking on some really adult responsibilities and, you know, they're growing up as protectors. Well, at the same time, their lives are under threat too. I mean, imagine coming home from school to find out that your your dad is gone. You know, the one who earns the living and kissed you goodbye that morning and helped with the homework and does all the laundry. Or, you know, imagine going to school worried that your mom won't be there when you come home because she got arrested at her workplace or at the doctor's office. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And I actually um, got interested in this topic area when I was working as a clinician in the communities. I was treating a lot of kids for um, anxiety disorders, trauma-related disorders, and in particular, separation anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. among kids who witnessed the deportation of their parents or their parents' arrest and then subsequent deportation. Mm -hmm. And so I really got into this area first through my clinical work. Um, but, I, but I agree that these, these kids really take on, you know, a much more a, maybe adult role or, or, or they're exposed to much more adult content given the risk that parents experience in in living in the United States undocumented. They talk about being trapped. Um, They talk about living in the shadows. They talk about not being able to go to work uh, or or, or not taking the same routes to work. They talk about this increased vulnerability for arrest and deportation, even for nonviolent crimes, right? Being afraid of getting stopped at a stop sign. And here in Texas, you know, racial profiling and driving brown or driving black, as we we often refer to it, is a real thing. And so parents really are afraid that they're going to be picked up for a cracked taillight and that's going to lead to their deportation, even though they're really not, I mean, they're certainly not participating in violent um, crimes. And so they refer to this status as trapping them. Um, And it kids kids are aware of it they grow up with this fear and this this pervasive threat of family separation um and some parents because of the fear that they think it will instill in their children or because their children are too young 
don't even disclose their status to their children. And that brings a whole host of other risk factors. Like if you're picked up and your children don't know, you know, who are your children going to stay with and who would have power of attorney? Really practical questions that come up when there's not a plan in place. And so, you know, the fear uh, and the threat of this family separation really immobilizes many parents and they, they, they don't talk about their status or they don't plan for the day where this might be possible. And that, that in some ways increases the risk for the children. And then lastly, they talk about this, I call it altered family processes. So family processes are kind of like the way in which families interact, who makes the decisions, how, how, you know, what are each individual person's role in the family. And kids really, to some degree, there's a, there's a power differential um, with, with undocumented parents, particularly when their kids are the ones providing certain services for them, like the language brokering or yeah. communicating on behalf of their parents. Um, and so, and then we see parents, you know, afraid to discipline in traditional ways because they're afraid that child protective services would get involved or that the schools may get involved and that may lead to their identification. And so that also um, in some, in some families has crippled them to really parent their children in the way that they really believe is the best way because they don't want to inadvertently put, you know, their families at risk should they come to the detention of the school or child protective yeah, services. Yeah. Oh, it's so complicated. Yeah. I remember having, um, you know, patients when I was a labor and delivery nurse uh, who didn't speak English and were definitely undocumented and they have to bring their children with them when they were having babies uh, to, you know, help us, talk it through. And what a huge responsibility that was. You know, sometimes it was a son coming in and having to be there while his mother was having a sibling. Um, and, you know, we had ways of making sure that everyone's, that mom's privacy was protected and dignity. And, you know, we we knew what we were doing. But for that child, that's a tremendous responsibility, you know? Yeah, tremendous. So one of the kids said to their dad on on their birthday, uh, she says, Dad, I want to ask you for a gift on my birthday. I want you to behave yourself so that the police don't take you. <laughs> These are some of the narratives, um, you know, that kids are saying, Mom, learn English. We're not always going to be around to help you. Yeah. Um, you know, Parents struggle with feeling unheard or, or not not seen by the schools because they felt disempowered by their their inability to communicate. Parents talked about feeling depressed. One one lady says, just speaking of this, I feel sad and worried. I get very depressed. What I love most in life is my children. I would never want to leave my children. It's extremely painful. Yeah. So these are really powerful narratives coming from parents about their experience in parenting their kids and about how they perceive this to affect their children. Yeah. You know, some of our listeners probably just absolutely don't get it. You know, they're wondering, they're not able to really relate to this because they are so far out of this loop. And to me, it's like, 
any parent who's listening, any mother who's listening who has had to go back to work and leave a baby with a childcare provider knows what separation anxiety is. She knows that feeling of having her heart torn in half when she has to go back to work. That's, you know, a small dose of what it might be like, and then add fear and legal complications and the potential to be separated forever and set the whole thing on fire. And maybe we're getting close. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and one of the things that I think many people don't know, at least with many of the families that I work with who are from Mexico and parts of the Northern Triangle in Central America. So that's um, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Honduras and, and, and El Salvador, for example, are ranked first and third in the world for, for the highest murder rate outside of a combat zone. Many of these women and children are terrorized. Mm-hmm. They really are fleeing, even though the United States doesn't recognize them as refugees. I think it makes sense to people when, when you know, they hear some of the stories about rape and about homelessness and about hunger and about gang violence, that it, it would make sense to people why they would whisk, risk their lives to mm-hmm. come here. Mm-hmm. And so I just, even though I know it's out of the realm of many of the things that, that sometimes we're forced to think about, I really think that people would have more of an open mind if they understood the kinds of environments and situations that women and children in particular are fleeing. Yeah. Yeah. I know it, it still surprises me that there are a lot of people who, you know, think that, well, they're over there and we're over here and we only take care of ourselves and they should be taking care of themselves and their problems aren't our problems. And that is just such nonsense in the world that we live in today because, you know, we live in a global society now. We're all global right. citizens now. The children that you're talking about are the children that are in our neighborhoods eventually. They're the children, you know, they're ours. They're ours. U.S. citizen kids. These kids are our future. Yes. And if we create a class of second generation citizens, if we tell them that because they're brown, they don't count or because they're parents came here and they were undocumented and we should have never had that law where if you're born on U.S. territory, you're a U.S. citizen, right? If that's the message that they hear, that they're second best, they're going to grow up and they're not going to be great citizens, right? They're not going to have loyalty and love for the United States. They're going to feel alienated. And we can see in some of our European contexts what happens in communities where the alienation is really deep. And even in the U- United States, we can see this sometimes within the African-American community. It, it, the oppression is, is significant and it has a very long-term effect on, on, on people's ability to integrate into, into mainstream society. So I, I don't think it works to anyone's advantage to take that perspective, particularly when we're talking about the large number of kid, U.S. citizen kids who are affected by this issue. 5.1 million. 7% of all U.S. 7% of all children in the U.S. have a, a have an undocumented parent. That's shocking. I mean, that actually doesn't shock me, but in context of how many children are dealing with this, it does. You know, it's just, it's a lot. 
Yeah. So do you think we're raising a generation of children with PTSD and anxiety disorders around this? I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, who's to know? Because there are many, there are many things that contribute to post-traumatic stress disorder and depression mm-hmm. and anxiety. Some of that is biology. Mm-hmm. What we really know is it's the interaction of biology and environment um, that really act as sort of a perfect catalyst for many of these mental health disorders. I, I do think that we are creating um, a very stressful environment for children in their development. And we know that pervasive and chronic stress, even if it doesn't rise to the level of trauma, chronic stress over a long period of time has a wear and tear on the body. And that wear and tear on the body after a long while causes mental health problems, but it also causes physical problems like diabetes, um, you know, heart conditions like, um, blood pressure and cholesterol. And so the, the long exposure to these stressful environments really has both a a mental and physical impact on kids. And we can see that even outside of the context of immigration. So I I am concerned that these very stressful um, experiences in such a critical period of development is going to have a long lasting effect on their well-being over over the life course. Yeah, you know, I think about that ripple effect kind of on the global level. You know, when we think about women living in really traumatizing and dangerous circumstances, you know, Rohingya women, uh women in Syria and Jordan and Yemen and, you know, women who are facing these really huge atrocities. And you think about these communities are made up of dozens, hundreds of really traumatized women who are then raising a generation of children with that stress. And those children will then go on to have their lives and be impacted by their mother's mental health. And they'll raise their, you know, and and they tell two friends and they tell two friends. It's that kind of thing where that ripple keeps on going. And in my way of thinking, it just makes common sense that we could be having a way better ripple effect of, you know, supporting mothers to be at their best so that they can raise their children to be at their best. And then that goes and that goes and that goes. We're not doing much of that. No, I mean, I, I agree. And, and I think it's really interesting because what I've learned from the, you know, from, from youth and, and from the families themselves is that despite all of these adversities, in many ways, they are extremely yeah. resilient. And what makes sense to me is to capitalize on their right. resilience. They were resilient right? enough to get this yeah. far, you know? Yes. When a, when a child travels by themselves 1,400 miles to get to the U.S. border because they feel like that's their only way to survive. I mean, imagine the efficacy that one takes at 14 to travel 1,400 miles. I know. Our 14-year-olds are telling us they can't find the garbage can when we tell them to take out the trash. (laughs) Yes, the the self-efficacy and the the resilience that, that many of these kids and families have is really is really tremendous. And I think we could capitalize on that, right? 
we could capitalize on their their ingenuity. We um, we could capitalize on you know all all kinds of things that would make would makes would make um would would make the hardship so much more worth it. And I just don't think that that's the approach yeah, that we take. Either. Well, Jody, what else do well, you want people to know about the study? I I guess I just want to I want people to know that it's complicated. Yeah. That families I I think, you know, we think oh, adults come here, they migrate and they shouldn't have. They came here illegally or undocumented and they didn't have permission, right? And so the things that happen after that, therefore, are right. not our problem. <clears throat> and I, I just want them to think a little bit further outside the box and think about, while that may be true, right? While there may be comp- elements of that that, are, that may be true, the, the situations are far more complex now. Many of the families that participated in my study had lived in the United States for 14 or more yeah. years. These are long-term immigrants. These are long-term com- contributors to our communities. Um, and, in, and in some communities, the ejection of, of these people will have a real negative effect on the community as a whole. And so I just want us to think more, I want us to think more holistically about our policies and how they impact um, children in in these families and in the broader communities. And, and then try and think about how can we use research and evidence to make better policies. For example, I did a study a couple of years ago on with Salvadorian fathers. And we looked at, and, and the, this was a sample of Salvadorian fathers who were deported from the United States. And, pro- and when they arrived in El Salvador, we gave them some questions. And one of the questions we asked them was whether or not they planned to come back to the United States. Um, and this is despite all the risk factors in, of migration, despite the threat of federal prison and all of these things, we asked them if they had planned to come back to the United States. And what we found was fathers with U.S. citizen children and spouses in the United States were more than two times more likely to risk the migration journey. So what that tells me is, is that having kids in the United States, having family in, in, in social roots in the United States is so important to them that it's that, that jail and the threats of migration are not a sufficient deterrent to be separated for them. Therefore, I just, keep wondering, like, are our deterrent policies even effective? And I don't think that some of them are. And so I encourage us to really look at what is our goal? What is our, you know, what is our, what is our long-term solution? And then we have to be creative and flexible about the people who are already here and what that's going to mean to the communities and the children and the families that are here. And so I think it's multi-tiered, right? Like it's a multifaceted issue. And I just want our our listeners and and the friends of our listeners, I just want them to be aware of the complexity yeah. of the issue. 
I think any father who's listening to us can relate to those Salvadoran fathers. Yeah, Yeah, certainly. Well, I just have a couple more questions for you then. And we're shifting gears to the personal now. Um, how would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Parenting was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to yeah, expand on that? <laughs> I think of me, you know, 15 years ago, sitting in clinics with parents, mostly Spanish speaking, only parents who are coming in and they're stressed and they're struggling and they're maybe some of their kids are struggling. And I'm, and I'm thinking that like some of the solutions to the issues that they're struggling with are as easy as like learning how to implement timeout and learning how to hear your kids' words and learning how to rephrase their feelings. And, and I just think back to the person I was then and these, these women and all of their struggles. And I I just keep thinking like, they must have thought that I was completely out of touch. Here's this white woman telling me how to parent my child. She doesn't have children and she has no idea how hard it is. And so I just think with all of the resources and all of my education, I can still daily underestimate how difficult it is to be a parent. And in particular, I would argue a mom. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Especially if you want to be a good parent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life as a mom? Well, I'm I'm raising two young kids and you know, both of my kids are um you know, they're they're my kids are Hispanic. My husband is from Mexico. And it's interesting to be a, a, a white, light-skinned woman raising two brown children in the current context, particularly Latino kids. And so I, I, I'm, I'm reflecting a lot lately on my own privilege and, and kind of just things that I never thought I would, I, 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 never, I never lived. It was never my lived experience, right? And I'm seeing some of these struggles in my own children and Again, I come back to parenting is far harder than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. It teaches us so much, right? And yet it's so rewarding. When it, You know, I was in the Peace Corps and their slogan is, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. Uh-huh. And I used to think that was so corny. The Peace Corps was the toughest job you'll ever love. But I think tougher than that job is parenting. And yeah. it's also the thing that you love most about I mean, anyway, it's the thing that I love about the lo- I love most about being alive. Yeah, yeah. Nicely said. Well, Jody, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and to talk about this really important study. If people want to learn more about it, where should they go? Um, well, they can go to the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work, and they'll find a link to this to the study. It's also published in the Journal of Marriage and Family. Um, and also my email is J-C-A-R-D-O-S-O at central, C-E-N-T-R-A-L dot U-H dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to email a copy of the study to those interested. Great. And we'll try to put a link to that study in the, uh, in the information. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Jody. it was great talking to you. 
Okay, wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Our guest today was Jody Berger Cardozo, and the study we talked about is called Parenting in the Context of Deportation Risk. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com, tweet me at jeanfaulkner, email me jean at jeanfaulkner, send me your questions and comments, and please pick up a copy of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever books are sold. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks, Alex. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is also a member of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts that cover all things pregnancy and parenting. One of those is Preggy Pals with POD founder Sonny Galt. Here's a short preview. Give a listen and then head on over to Parents on Demand. Bye, everybody. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again to our sponsor, Prep Dish. And head on over to preptish.com forward slash common sense, all lowercase, to grab your two-week free trial. Another big, big thanks to our sponsors, Mommy Steps Insoles. Go get yourself a pair at maternityinsoles.com and use coupon code common sense at checkout for a special 20% discount just for our listeners. Our guest today was Jody Berger Cardoso, and the study we talked about is called Parenting in the Context of Deportation Risk. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com, tweet me at jeanfaulkner, email me jean at jeanfaulkner, and send me your questions and comments. And please pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever books are sold. Common Sense Pregnancy is also a member of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts that cover all things pregnancy and parenting. One of those is Preggy Pals with P- Parents on Demand founder Sunny Galt. Give a listen to this short preview and head on over to POD. Bye, everybody. <laughs>